Yeah, how do you how do you want to start? I guess. Yeah, we don't we don't have a a tradition to start that to how to start that yet, right? So yeah, yeah, that's true. Just like keep it simple for now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess we can just start out with uh, this is Ohan's voice. Yes. <laughs> um, that's Guilherme here. And uh, yeah, I guess we're just gonna open up the podcast with uh, a couple of chats about why it is we chose cognitive science and why we think it's a useful lens for looking at society and a lot of things we think about on a day-to-day basis. So I guess we'll just start out by um, yeah, asking you what, what made you go into cognitive science. Yeah, I think, I think the, the, the goal could be also um, tell a little bit about ourselves uh, in general and the relationship between ourselves and cognitive science and then just like um, let people know what uh, who we are, who is the people talking here. Yeah. And um, yeah, I can I can give you a little bit of, of background of myself as well. So yeah, I'm Brazilian. I'm from Sao Paulo. I grew up in a neighborhood called Grajaú. Um, and I, I, I went to Europe. I traveled to Europe to live and to learn um, English first uh, in Ireland uh, and spent some time there. Spent some, spent three years actually, and then I moved to Portugal to Lisbon to study anthropology. And um, to this point, I have I had read um, quite some things on on behavior on uh, some anthropology, some psychology, popular books actually. So a lot of popular books on science, so science divulgation kind of books. And I think that led me to choose anthropology in the first place. I, I was curious to understand uh, <clears throat> why in every country that we would go, people would behave differently. I think, yeah, like I start, I, I'm, as, a, as a teenager or like a young adult, I was fascinated by this Darwinian story, uh, a story that could explain everything. And um, I would be fascinated that it could not explain everything. And the things that it could not explain, that's the thing that I wanted to have answers for. So I look at anthropology and it looked like, it looked like that it, it was striving to try to understand or to explain uh, uh, why yeah, people di- just behave differently in different places and uh, what are the causes and uh, in general. Um, what are the important questions that we could uh, uh, we could answer uh, with observing how people do the things they do? And um, yeah, I think it was a great time doing anthropology. I really love it, and I I I, I care a lot about it. I, I really um, I'm fascinated by um, by the whole story of anthropology, by the whole topic, and I think it's a beautiful discipline. Um, but certainly. A certain point I found it in, incomplete for what I was looking for and um, I did anthropology but I did basically a minor in primatology um, at the time of my bachelor's um, so I wanted to still work with primates and I wanted to answer some other kind of different questions um, we can go into those questions a little bit more in detail but I turned myself to cognitive science for my master's. Uh, I did cognitive science, uh, my master's in cognitive science in Vienna, at the University of Vienna. And I follow up with uh, the PhD in cognitive science. And uh, yes, I worked with primates uh, during the master's as well. 
but also with humans. Uh, this is a little, just a little bit of background uh, to explain why I, I got into cognitive science in a nutshell. But uh, yeah, you can take your turn and, and tell us a little bit more of uh, how did you get here? Yeah, and then I have, I think, a couple of questions of about some of the things you said. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm from New York, uh, from Queens, and um, my family are, are Armenian immigrants, so grew up with a lot of different languages in the house, so that was always a very fascinating thing for me, how people could be interpreting symbols uh, in one way, but somebody who has never had access to those symbols could be, their mind could be locked away from you if you don't know the language. So that was always a very interesting aspect to me and seeing all the different cultures in the in Queens and in New York City in general, just interacting all these different styles of interaction and behavior. And I remember also that when all these thoughts were sort of occurring, I also <laughs> interestingly had come across, I guess in, in a class or something, the idea of JFK's assassination mm -hmm. and the idea that his brains were blown out. Mm -hmm. And one second he was alive and the other second bits of his brain were scattered around the car. And even if you assembled all those bits and put it back in, you wouldn't have the person anymore. Mm -hmm. And I, that's kind of the first time I can remember explicitly thinking about the importance of what the brain is and what existing is in general. So that really sort of uh, sent a spark and that was probably like, I don't know, about nine, 10 or something like that. Um, and then from then on, it was just reading a ton of fiction. So that fiction really got me interested in identity and selfhood and what that might mean. And uh, for undergrad, I ended up studying sort of the mathematics of behavior, basically game theory and worked in finance for a few years, did that. And then uh, I, I'm a, as a poet, I was like, okay, maybe I should just leave finance, start working on the poetry side of everything. So I left the finance world, left New York, moved around a while, settled in Sri Lanka, moved on a moved to a friend's farm, uh, worked on the farm for a while, then was also consulting and then started a sustainability consultancy in, in Sri Lanka. And that was an, an amazing experience and also a chance to kind of see how how people functioning also be working on something that is really important for the now and very uh very rewarding but uh there was a point where i had to be really honest with myself and say okay well if i don't take the chance to study cognition i'm always going to be disappointed with with one with one core driver of my life so that's when i applied to a bunch of programs uh, ended up studying in istanbul at boazici university got my master's in uh, cognitive psychology and cognitive philosophy, working mostly on epistemology, applied epistemics, and and also the sort of beliefs and belief dynamics. And then, of course, moved on to the PhD. So, yeah, I mean, I think that studying, studying cognition is an interesting thing because it sits right at the this interesting boundary of a lot of the physical aspects of biology and then all these... Um, everything that's extended from it, everything that emerges from it. So I think the, the human sits at an interesting nexus where up until then, there are all the biological agents that make up uh, these very complex systems like humans. And then beyond humans, humans are actually individual agents within this larger system. So society is to humans as the individual cell is to humans, at least uh, analogously. So that, that aspect always really excited me. Really cool, really cool. I think we, we have to make it clear that actually cognitive science is not a ancient science, right? Yeah. 
It is a it's a kind of like a new old, yeah. enterprise of, uh, as you said, m trying to put a lot of dip different perspectives, like different disciplines together to work on the kind of kind of the same problem. Is it it? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's all the different facets of the same problem, and that problem is how the hell is it that human beings do something so radically different from anybody else, from any other at the end of the living species? Hmm. I think it's it's something like not just the ability to perceive information and, and maintain information about information in what we might call beliefs, but then also to generate information which is novel, uh, I'd say in a sense hmm. has degrees of freedom, uh, a certain degree of abstraction from the information perceived. I think that's quite a phenomenal transition that human beings are able to do. Yeah, I think um, yeah, I think the key word there is information, right? We are dealing with information as cognitive scientists. Um, yeah, there's there there a good branch of cognitive science dealing with consciousness. Do you think that's also related, to, or how do you, how can you say that is related to information in general? Because uh, what I'm trying to do here is just like paint. The general picture of what cognitive science is before uh, we we can continue talking about why um, we chose it or why it drove us to it but um, also if someone is listening to it and maybe have a vague understanding of what it is or what are the problems that we're dealing with maybe we could make it more clear as well we can talk we can spend a little bit of time talking about it yeah that, that's a really good point so the fun thing about cognitive science and i think especially what attracted you and I to each other theoretically is that we have a very broad view of the methods and tools you can use to investigate cognition. So cognition itself seems to be a, a very difficult thing itself to define. Um, it's sort of the special sauce uh, of the human mind, but there are so many different ways that we can look at it. Anything from uh, more physical aspects, anything from physics, chemistry, biology to that sort of bridge of neuroscience into psychology uh, and then over into sociology, anthropology, and philosophy. There's so many different ways uh, that we can try to unpack uh, what it is that human beings are doing when we do this very complicated thing of interacting um, and really shaping our realities as much as our realities shape us. Mm -hmm. And... Um yeah, I don't think uh, I don't think it's necessary to go through the story of cognitive science, right? Or like, no, uh, I think we could probably skip that. But uh, but there is a very good Wikipedia article on it. Um, yeah, I I would rather go into why uh, why you really like anthropology. Um, well, I like anthropology. B well, for me, it seemed before I started actually that it was the multidisciplinary the most multidisciplinary uh um discipline first of all from the angle i was looking at it so i i look at the primatologists and they call themselves anthropologists i look at archaeologists and they call themselves anthropologists i look at some social psychologists kind of calling themselves anthropologists and so yeah i think well these guys know what they're doing right they they are really taking all of the perspectives on the problem and they're tackling it they're being holistic and um i i like the way that the the um, i like the third person perspective as well or like actually the, the no the third person perspective the first person perspective actually of like participating on the life of the people and um 
and uh, understanding it from within. I think, but I think, yeah, the, the thing that most attracted me was this idea uh, of anthropology being this uh, extremely multidisciplinary space. Um, and the question, uh, the, the, the reason that anthropology exists is to study, or it's presumably uh, to study uh, the human species at every place at every time. So that was like, when I heard that sentence for the first time, I don't remember from where, I was just like, oh, that's that's what I need. So from any time, so since the first human, like the first day one human, until what's gonna happen in a thousand years from now, from humans um, and anywhere on the planet to humans on Mars. So that's what attracted me. So we, we we can explain all of those things. It's like fascinating if we can. And uh, yeah, I saw primatologists, archaeologists, uh, linguists, uh, sociologists, all themselves kind of calling themselves anthropologists. So that was a uh, um, serious um, problem tackling for me. And what, uh, what did primatology offer? Maybe that gives people a good sense. Maybe they don't know why somebody might study primates in general, primates at large when you're studying cognition. Yeah, primates are the, 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 the closest uh, living relatives to us. So uh, we share a lot of um, um, uh, genetic information. So we are very similar to them uh, genetically. But um, consequently, we also share, share a lot of, of um, ecological structures with them. So, um, and socio-ecological structures actually. So we, 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 um, we kind of uh, structure our lives um, through the interactions with other um, individuals within our, our environment. And um, yeah, it, it's, it's just a lot of similarities. Uh, how long time does it take to an infant to become an adult? How long time does a maternal care uh, uh, it's necessary for that uh, um, sharing, uh, um, learning. Well, the list is really big on similarities. So studying primates, um, it's, a, it's, it's a good way to go for the question of what makes us different when we have so much in common, but um, um, primates uh, don't build cities like New York and Sao Paulo. Uh, so why? why they don't uh, um, so we look for what is different between us especially in the case of cognition yeah i think that, that brings up a really interesting point of why why it's very fun to look at different species especially our closest relatives is when we're trying to understand the capacities that human beings have that are distinct mm -hmm. and especially the the degree to which we're able to execute some of those faculties it's really useful to have that comparison between an adult chimp and an adult human and also there are going to be differences in the types of capacities they have but also um, the the level of skill that they're able to to achieve the uh, and that difference between the actual primates versus say human infant which doesn't have the same capacities as, an, as a human adult but ostensibly would it end up reaching that capacity so we can kind of build not just a, a developmental argument when we look at infants and infant humans and, and adult humans, but then also build some kind of loose uh, framework trajectory of what 
what course evolutionarily these capacities might have taken when we look at uh, our closest relatives and, and humans being that we're so closely related. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, but I think it's important to say <coughs> that uh, um, etologists, primatologists, well, not not yeah, primatologists as well, we look to uh, at something called convergent evolution, and um, it's um, is the idea that uh, nature can come up with the same solutions uh, for similar problems, not necessarily by transmitting genetic material. So. It's important to still to look at primates because of the way, w because of the kind of problems they have. So they have to uh, interact in those social groups, and uh, those are kind of like the problems that most of us have. <laughs> so yeah, we just assume that uh, nature has ways to get to the same solutions to similar problems, and uh, not necessarily we would have to look only at primates for that. So when we are comparing with other animals when we are comparing our behavior to other animals. We can also look for animals that have, um, or, or like animals that, different kind of species that have the same kind of problem and, and um, the ways that the, the solutions can be achieved uh, and compare these kinds of solutions to the same kind of problem, so an environment. But I think that's, a, a, that's an important point um, to just to say that comparative psychology and anatology uh, in general, it's, it's uh, and in the case, if you wanted to start humans and understand a little bit more what makes us different, is it's not only about primates, but we can we can extend it for for many other species. Yeah, and I I guess just to switch gears a little, one of the things that um, also really interests me about some of the other fields, take you know linguistics for example, mm -hmm. something that I thought I would probably be spending a bit more time in, I didn't end up going down that route, uh, but there humans are c capable of a phenomenal degree of expression through language. And I think that's, you know, we're doing it right now, this very abstract, quite profound thing of being able to communicate rather precisely the the depth of breadth of thoughts that we're that that are occurring in our in our minds. And I think that's quite phenomenal. And as a as a poet, that that aspect also really interested me, the ability to craft a narrative and order a sequence of images, symbols basically, and then project those symbols out into space and have them received and processed by another mind is a phenomenal thing. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's absolutely extraordinary. And so the, I think that's another really important aspect of trying to understand uh, cognitive science is these are the types of things that are investigated, the, the faculties which maybe to some degree are present in, in the the rest of the biological world, but are somehow different through through degree, most likely, uh, in in human beings and how, how humans do it, especially with you know especially with things like uh, like tool use, which I think is something very close in that it's it's a thought and a series of thoughts that can then be uh, brought into the physical world. Mm -hmm. So it's it's something purely abstract that's occurring inside of the mind, but humans developed an ability to bring those thoughts out and shape the world around them either through sound or through physical manipulation. And whether it's you know telling a story or building a tool, there's something really I think profound about that that capacity to shape the world around us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I when I when I hear you saying actually I I get super curious to 
to listen to you uh, talking a, a little bit more of a, uh, of a narrative or story crafting because you're you, you spend a lot of time doing it so and I think that is fascinating as well um, from the perspective that we build our societies by building stories it's incredible it's it's just a it's a it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a piece of us that's uh, it's a it's a it's at the core probably it's one of the core uh, uh, it's one of the essence uh, of of being human. It's uh, working our lives through stories, and uh, and I wanted to hear more um, you talking about it. Maybe maybe not right now, but maybe we could even have an, an episode about uh, storytelling. I think that would be cool, and I think uh, I would enjoy a lot uh, hearing you talking about that. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. And also, uh, a, a poem comes to mind, which I'll maybe put. A link to in in whatever show notes we put up um we are the music makers by arthur o'shaughnessy which i think captures that really well but also i mean you make music so there's something about the the oral suspension of of other minds by basically manipulating the sound around them and yeah. i think that's also very powerful yeah that's cool yeah that's that's something in music that's uh um is well we have here on, on our lab uh a music uh, uh centered kind of a uh research center like uh, a music research center right so that's a uh, that's super cool it's part of cognitive science is an important part of our cognition as well um what do you think about the other um well how, how can we put it like cognitive science is a family right it's a family of um of um approach family of uh, interests family of uh, perspectives what do you think about the, all the other components of, like we talked a little bit about uh, now, how ling language is interesting. I, I think I can say language is interesting for me. I like uh, I like the idea of understanding how stories are built. I like the idea of understanding how stories evolve, how they, like how old, like how, how uh, Hansel and Gretzel become uh, a Disney movie from like being told by mothers um, I don't know many maybe a thousand years ago I don't know uh, so I'm fascinated by that I like how language make it possible how I like to understand how language evolves as well so and uh, from the anthropological side I like symbolic uh, symbolic anthropology I'm fascinated by it um, I, I already said a little bit about anthropology um and also the biological aspect of 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 uh, doing uh, cognitive science but we have other uh other members on the family right yeah definitely i think uh yeah w what what you touched upon also is uh an important aspect of culture which is something a lot of animals do but humans do i think to probably uh, maybe in an entirely different degree in the in the amount of information we're able to store mm -hmm. about about the culture itself, so the narratives end up being very fleshed out and broad, and I think that that's really interesting as well. Um, but yeah, with regard to the other with regard to the other um, aspects of of neuro of uh, cognitive psychology, I mean everything from from neuroscience to to sort of cognitive elements of biology. I actually one of the routes that I was originally on was a cognitive uh, biology uh, track. And uh, I was working in a small neuroscience lab and that was, that was really fun. 
Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting how everybody has preferred levels of explanation that they that they like to think in, and people are looking for different different degrees of sort of causal explanations from say the more minimal units of uh, that that comprise cognition. So if you're looking at something like individual cells or um, or say even groups of cells, like any any range of the neuroscience or biology that you might be doing. Um, whereas sort of we focus a bit more on the 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 psychology realm of of cognition. We're sort of at the the whole individual human as an agent, and so I think that we're we're at an interesting middle point, at least in scale, of of all of the cognitive scientists, because beyond beyond the cognitive psychology aspect, you get broader and broader collections of human beings, uh, like the cognitive sociology and cognitive anthropology. And then beneath the human, you get all the subcomponents, the sub-agents that might be making up this one individual agent, which is basically the the crux of the question. So I think that's also really interesting is that some not all cognitive scientists agree about the best methods to be using to be understanding cognition. But generally, there there is some degree of appreciation of the fact that we're all trying to answer the same question. But... Um, yeah, well, maybe, okay. maybe not always the case, but it's uh, at least at least I know I know you and I tend to have a, a good deal of respect for for people answering the question regardless. Um, but yeah, I think that's a really interesting aspect about cognitive science in that it spans so many different types of methods and so many different scales, and also it it kind of goes from from the physical realm to something like very abstract like um, societies over time. I think that's a incredibly sort of nebulous and abstract idea that that anthropology has done an incredible job of making a whole great deal of sense of. Mm. Two questions. Um, you were also a philosopher, so yeah. What's the role of philosophy in cognitive science? So what's the level of explanation that philosophy tackles there? And the second, uh, another question is: um, um, Do you think we? Well, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna put it at the list is a. Uh, of uh, the family, it's uh, anthropology, cognitive biology, uh, philosophy, computer science, uh, psychology, uh, and neuroscience. Am I missing anyone? Yeah, I think there are probably a lot of tangential ways people, well, yeah. linguistics, uh, linguistics, but a lot of tangential ways people can also be studying cognition. But yeah, I think that's Do you think we rough. understand each other at all? Oh, I, I think there's, there's a gradient of understanding for sure. Mm -hmm. um, I, I like to think in gradients... Generally, I think uh, there's a great quote from William James uh, after he had experimented a bit with, with nitrous oxide. Uh, he said, there are no differences, but differences of degree among different degrees of difference and no difference. And I find that to be uh, kind of my guiding principle in all of my science. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a bit of a mantra for me uh, because stumbling upon that, I was like, yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense because I... There are there are a lot of cognitive scientists who think that there are that there are um, differences of kind when we're dealing with capacities faculties, um, but I I tend to think that there's nothing uh, different in kind between between human cognition and non-human animal cognition. Mm -hmm. I think that everything tends to be a difference of degree. So it's sort of my investigative bias that I always apply uh, when I'm when I'm thinking about something. But I do think that um, I am at the core uh, 
a bit more of a philosopher than a than a cognitive psychologist, just because I like to deal more with the realm of theory than the realm of hypotheses. Although obviously most of my day to day work is, especially uh, right now these days, is with hypothesis construction and hypothesis testing. But uh, actually, the core motivation for me is to be dealing more at the uh, the realm of theory appraisal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you remind something that it got stuck in my mind as well. It's just a mentor that uh, she starts one of her talks trying to provocate people. So she just yeah, asks straight away the question: What makes us different? What makes us special? Is it um, is a, a matter of quality or quantity? And then obviously. The whole, the whole, like I was still a master student, but there was like some postdocs, and the room goes like that, like, yeah, there is this. Oh no, but that it's not the case. But like, there is also this. Oh, but there is this exception, and and obviously, she that's what she wanted to do. And she yeah, with with uh, quality and quantity here being analogous to uh, degree and kind, respectively. Yes, yes, yeah, kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, so. Quality, quality, qualitatively saying is just like, do we have something that is fundamentally different? So we have a kind, a different kind, or uh, in quantity, or like, do we have something more? Like, do do we have all the same kinds but something more of one kind? Like, uh, I think that's that's the way to put it. Oh, do you think that uh, in quantity she meant more kinds? No. Or a difference of degree? A difference in degree. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah, but. Um, what she said after was basically something that it took to my mind and I kind of, that's what the way that I understood. I don't wonder, I don't remember what she said, mm-hmm. but, um, you can have the same ingredients and make a different recipe of, out of it. Just, just change the recipe. Just, uh, put the things, uh, in different places, use them in a different way and you, you just get it like a different cake, you know? And uh, you don't have to have any special ingredient. You don't have to have uh, more sugar or milk or anything like that. You just have to change the recipe. And that's, that's uh, stuck to my mind. That's, uh, yeah, but if what makes us different is just, uh, just the recipe. We have everything else the same. Yeah, yeah. I think that... Uh, or the potential to have, like, uh, obviously there will be um, um, some things that we can call different, obviously. That, like we can look at it and say that's that's different, but I mean, I think you you understood what I mean. Just yeah, recipe wise, there can be slight differences, but I think the majority of the recipe is predominantly the same, mm-hmm. and that that's a quite interesting thing. Is that there's a whole uh, aspect of um, the philosophical angle that looks at structure and the importance of structure, both from the biological end um, to the psychological end of how from very similar ingredients, you can get um, different outputs purely because of how everything's structured and organized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the, I'm not talking about, uh, um, ing- when I say ingredients, I'm not saying basically a genetic material. I'm saying uh, the, the, the capacities, the functions and everything else. Uh, um, um, when we look at the, when we look at, uh, at chimpanzees, uh, we looked at the biggest in percentage the biggest genetic difference uh, between us and them is that they they can smell better. They can they have a better. Uh, uh, they're like when you look at their brain and the genetic material that like that, that builds the brain, uh, or w- w- at least what we can map, right? Uh, 
uh, yeah, they have a good nose. And uh, how does that make uh, them so like different than us? Or is this maybe a case of perspective that is different as well. Like uh, we can make the case of the alien coming down to Earth and looking at us. Maybe, yeah, those are primates. They're all kind of like uh, these ones build cities, and these ones not. In the end, they are kind of a kind of the same thing. Yeah, that that uh, that makes me think of a um, great book called The Naked Ape which I think maybe you'd come across as well. It's a uh, great book. I'm struggling to find the, remember the name of the author, but I can uh, try to remember, put that in the notes as well. Um, but yeah, you, you said one thing. I'm going to need you to circle back because I lost the train of thought. Um, yeah. Can you repeat what the, the last bit that you just said? The alien? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just about the, the different faculties uh, that, it, oh, sorry, I remembered. Um <laughs> This, aside from the sense of smell, you get really interesting things like um, the fact that chimpanzees are, have a really phenomenal uh, working memory. Yes. So they and they can s purvey more uh, aspects of a scene very rapidly. Yes. Uh, and that that's quite phenomenal. There's that great experiment, which of course you know with with chimps shown a series of numbers on a screen in a particular order, and they're shown it for for fractions of a second, and they're able to pick nine digits um, very quickly in the order that they appeared. Mm -hmm. And humans obviously fail miserably at this. We can get maybe three or four, mm -hmm. but they can get all nine, and they're shown it even for a shorter sequence of time than humans are shown, which then also... Uh, I think they, they did way more than nine, actually. I think they, 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 trained, they, they trained one of the chimps. I, I remember she was doing... I don't remember now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to guess, but it was it was above 14 or something. Oh, it's, like, it's just an incredible working memory. Yeah. And that uh, I, that reminds me of uh, a good uh, a good paper from Andrew Nagel, the the philosopher. Uh, what is it like to be a bat? Mm -hmm. Where he kind of works through the idea of trying to understand uh, what it is like to experience the the consciousness of of another animal, and working through how how difficult, if not uh, impossible, that might be. So I think that that's also quite a quite a fun exercise of it's it's so difficult to put yourself into the mind of an animal that has completely uh, well maybe completely but maybe just a difference of degree uh different uh uh faculties uh or or heightened or diminished senses uh from what from what we experience yeah i i completely subscribe to 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 Dead. I think, uh, well, uh, my take is, is that, um, yeah, we, we think we're very special, um, but we're very, we're very good at the things that we are good at, right? <laughs> so we, 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 we grow up in a human society that where we have to do things, and if we do that well, uh, we call ourselves intelligent. But, uh, yeah, you compare yourself to the chimp on the woods, you're not you're 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 dumb <laughs> yeah I, I i didn't want to say like that but like, I, I'm, I'm i'm talking i'm talking from the point of like um what are the explanations for for this work uh for the for the memory um on the primates um it's just like um yeah imagine that you have to jump from one tree to the other and there's all these brains um around so if you can remember the pathway that you need to take by remembering kind of like all oh, these brains over here that one's over there so you just like navigate easily so we could not never do that like, yeah 
I think it's also the this very rapid ability to sample the visual environment, yeah. which we are really not able to do anywhere near as well. Yeah. And uh, it's it's I think that a lot of the uh, caloric usage of the brain got used up for other things, mm-hmm. other things that are way more necessary for us than than sampling a whole wide range of of the visual environment. Mm-hmm. There's a obviously only a limited number of things that we can do, only a limited number of um, limited amount of energy that the, the brain could be using at any given moment. And I think it, it was probably more useful to be spending that energy on other faculties than uh, being able to uh, notice 14 distinct things every 100 microseconds, mm-hmm. 100 milliseconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that's actually quite interesting as well. And um, in another take, what do you think about um, the branch of uh, computer science? And what does, how, how does it can be related to cognitive science in general, but also our work or our interests on cognitive science. Yeah, I think the the pursuit of cognitive science is a really interesting one because there are there are two ways where human beings could have could experience um, an entity. I suppose the third way as well, um, where human beings can experience an entity which is uh, say at the, at the capable of the same degree of cognition that humans are capable of. One would be that. Uh, somehow, spontaneously, you know, bonobos would reach a heightened level of cognition, and then all of a sudden, we'd have a different species that is as capable as humans. Which, but long shot. Um, the other one, equally long shot, is that aliens come down and they have they have high cognitive capacities. I'm not putting my money on either one of those. But um, the other, the the third option is that we actually create one that our our sort of intellectual progeny the artificial intelligence uh, is capable of either having or mimicking uh, to to a high degree of fidelity the type of cognition that we are capable of, in which case uh, we have the ability to interact with a form of life which is vastly different from us, but also to some degree our intellectual equal. And I think that's a, that's a profound experiment. And that, that's sort of the long view philosophical take on computer science of course uh the immediate thing is much more at the micro scale of trying to mimic some of the things that we see in humans and there are sort of two ways to go about that one is actually mimicking the the structure of of the mind and say the nervous system as a whole to produce an output and the other one is not necessarily mimicking any of the structure but trying to generate the same output that we see in humans and there are you know, infinite number of subdivisions between those and, and people's computer scientists' perspectives on what might be the most useful. But I think it is a a really interesting endeavor. I don't know if it tells us about cognition as much as it tells us about how to how to mimic cognition, which of course is an element of understanding cognition itself. Mm-hmm. But it's not a, a direct application of understanding what it is uh, human beings do. Uh, although, of course, there's a whole element of computer science, which is the robotics mm-hmm. sort of subdivision, which is also really interesting. Um, yeah, and these these are all really phenomenally interesting attempts that have a lot to tell us about how we function and how we learn. I think I think um, there there is a point of um, there is a, a point of, of of a turning point on 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 computer science, which is very young as well. That is uh, the the bridging 
um, between this synthetic intelligence, which is can be considered natural intelligence as well, obviously, um, or in the case of robotic, uh, the synthetic materials and and humans, and we have no idea where they're gonna go yet, right? So, um, and that's pretty young, and maybe we could find answers on on. On, on a near future or or in a distant one but uh it, w we have to keep in mind that uh, how young it is and uh, yeah and also we're at a we're a really interesting time where literally in the last year or two um there are tools out there language models that are able to really mimic a lot of human output and are able to parse text and generate text uh that is able to interpret uh, very sort of complex language and then produce a phenomenal output. So I think those those language models are very interesting in that they would probably fool a lot of people in terms of you know whether or not they're talking to an actual person. Mm -hmm. um, and on the other side, there are an incredible amount of uh, incredible advancements in the ability to integrate technology and and chips to to work in tandem with the nervous system mm -hmm. to be able to um, build robotic arms, uh, rebuild parts of the spinal cord to allow people to walk. I mean, there are incredible advancements. And one is sort of the the idea of generating, getting closer to generating something that can mimic cognition. And the other one is the, uh, the science of trying to integrate technology into human beings rather than creating something separate mm -hmm. and uh, creating something something novel. I think the second one is much more interesting for me. Yeah, yeah, I guess it depends how far it gets. I mean, if if we create an artificial general intelligence, then that's incredibly interesting. I don't know if that's possible, um, but I think the the second one, the one of integrating technology into uh, the human, just the, the the individual human agent, I think that's really interesting because the we know that there are going to be improvements there regardless. Mm -hmm. Whereas uh, the you know, artificial general intelligence is still a theoretical concept. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I focus, like, yeah, I try to, not to, but I, I, I end up being um, um, drawn to to the aspect that is, uh, it's mimicking it. And um, the fact that, that you can program programs to program themselves but you someone has to program the program to program themselves at first place it's always a product of us they any kind of intelligence that we can um, um, produce it's a product of us well or I, not I suppose there's the there's a point at which uh, they're going to be able to generate wholly new systems on their own and that's like you know is your grandchild your child you know, and and there you'd have to say, yeah, it, it shares some of your genetic makeup, but there there are other elements of it that make it distinct. And I think that the any any sufficiently complex system that is created by a system that we create is is going to be like that. It's going to be novel in that sense. It's going to have our DNA in it. It sounds a lot like incest, or incest. Yeah, because what you're saying is just like we we give birth, yes, to this intelligence which yes. looks like us, yes. And then, like regular reproduction. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And then we, we, we're gonna breed with them, with no. this intelligence. Oh. To create something else, which is all—it's our grandchild, 
but it can only be born out of our interactions with the with our child. Oh no, yeah, th- I don't yeah, think okay, that's yeah, the case. Maybe, maybe I, I I drift away now. But yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I don't think that's actually the case. I think that uh, very soon they're gonna be we're gonna build something that on its own builds something new. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So in that yeah. sense, you're yeah. not needed. It's sort of like you yeah. you build something and then that on its own has the ability to reproduce. Yeah, that's and, what and I that's lost. That's basically what's that's happening. That's what I lost. Yeah, but um, yeah, yeah. No, I see your point. I see your point. Yeah, and then from then on, it's a you know sort of a entertaining philosophical exercise to think about what would happen next. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, <laughs> I think a long way away. But for now, it's they're very interesting tools, especially using something like like GPT to uh, actually conduct experiments to to see what would happen um, as people interact with GPT or or using it to um, construct novel stimuli. I think mm-hmm. that there's an incredible, um, you know, it, it provides uh, scientists who are constructing experiments a whole new set of tools to to access and, you know, potentially makes makes science a bit more efficient, especially with things like statistical analysis as well. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that that integration of such a powerful tool into our uh, into our everyday use as scientists, I think is in its on its own really really profound because it, it's already going to uh, seriously influence uh, the progression of human ideas. Mm-hmm. I have to tell you that uh, in the past months I have been incredibly frustrated with ChatGPT. <laughs> incredibly. You have no idea. Oh, man. It, have you been using GPT-4? No, I haven't. <laughs> that's, I haven't. that's the way to go. Yeah, I'm going to try. I'm going to try it out because the the 3.5 is just like it's extremely frustrating. Mm-hmm. I... um. Yeah, there was there was a point where I was trying to get it to uh, generate something for me, and it was almost like a, a Faustian deal, where everything I would list out a set of what I wanted, a, l- a set of things that I wanted, and it would manage to always generate those plus one thing that I didn't ask for. Mm-hmm. And every time I tried to outright the possible uh, things that it could think of that were different, it managed to produce yet still something which had a novel element which i didn't want and so that's also really interesting is that i couldn't outthink gpt4 in terms of trying to predict the elements it would include to to fuck up what i was trying to do Mm -hmm. and so that that was that was incredibly frustrating but also very entertaining Mm -hmm. but um yeah i'm gonna try the 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 four uh as in uh, well, well, f- w- what I'm using it for, it's uh, and basically it's for repetitive tasks. So, if I have a long task, uh, like a uh, changing, like I don't know, uh, the other day I had to, I had like many citations in a long note, and I wanted to add something to the citations, and so I just put it there and ask it just add this thing in this kind of format. So, kind of I could do with uh, uh, regex as well. Uh, sort of, but it would be very demanding and very complicated and very, uh, would just like take me more time. So I use ChatGPT, sometimes generating a plot in R. So I, I don't have to look for how do I um, change uh, some, something that is really small in a, in, the, in the plot, but I just put it there and I get in a second. But uh, yeah, I have been really frustrated with uh, how I deal with logics because... Uh, um what i get out of uh of the 3.5 it's uh, it's it's trying to convince me 
all the time. The text is just trying to convince me. Like, it's, a, it's just a convincing text. It's not... It, it doesn't work with... with, uh, with, with like, it, it, it breaks down very, very, very often on very simple logic aspects yeah. of 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 the, the of the text and i think there was a study uh two months ago and i believe that it might have been the four uh uh the gpt4 which it got wrong um 55 percent of uh coding um elements and structures so they just like f give these questions with coding and and it was more than half wrong yeah, I think that the important thing to keep in mind with with anything like this um, is that it's it's drawing on existing text, mm -hmm. so it it doesn't have a a computational capacity. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have a mathematics engine. It is only producing language, mm -hmm. and and that's quite an important aspect. And once we and there are there are people that are doing this. Uh, a buddy of mine has integrated. A mathematics engine, along with a um, language model, and what you're able to do is ask it very, very complex questions of of chemistry, math, physics, and it's able to guide you through all of the calculations. And it's actually doing the calculations on the back end, unlike something like a regular language model, mm -hmm. which is publicly available. Yeah, probably prob so prob that's the way to go. Because um, yeah. Um I didn't try, but there's uh, something called Copilot as well that is uh, specifically for coding. So you should be better in that direction. So yeah, if we're striving for yeah. general intelligence, you would have to combine all of those. You would have to combine all that. Yeah, and it's it's interesting to see, and I I know of of some folks trying to do this um, at a lab over in Germany, which is trying to integrate uh, language models and also sort of robotic elements. So you mm. can actually tell it to do things, and it'll change modes and say, okay, well, this this is a question I need to answer with. Uh, language, or this is a question I need to answer by moving m my robotic arm, and so that's that's quite impressive. And I think that there are slow integrations of these different faculties, which are very good. Um, obviously, we built a, a program that could that could beat the chess masters back in '96, and then I guess in 2018 also beat the Go masters at, at the game Go. So that there there are incredibly powerful. Uh, computers capable of logic, and there are incredibly powerful, obviously, computing capacities for mm -hmm. mathematics. Language is sort of the new aspect, and now once you include robotics, then you have this very interesting thinking machine. Uh, you have things like uh, companies like Boston Dynamics, which obviously have, f for better or worse, <laughs> sort maybe of worse. yeah, maybe for worse. But not <laughs> not sure. Um, definitely, definitely amazing scientific achievements, um, but. Uh, yeah, the the closeness to the to the military industrial complex is always a a very concerning thing, uh, but the, their advancements in robotics are really really exceptional. Uh, what what the robots are able to do, their ability to process information from the environment, and then produce very uh, complex and novel outputs. The what what basically emerges um, as a a, an awareness of their components of their body mm -hmm. and an integration of the information from their environments uh, to best achieve an outcome. I think that uh, is is simultaneously incredibly impressive and also, uh, frankly, quite terrifying. Yeah, that's true.
Well, we can come back a little bit more to the things uh, that relate us to cognitive science. So the questions that we're trying to answer. Uh, we can also talk a little bit about uh, of being political beings because we are right and tell a little bit more of um, how we see life, how we see um, society, and um, what we expected to get out of uh, being a cognitive scientist. Um, and um, you can you, you can say what kind what kind of questions do you want to answer, what kind of problems do you want to solve? Yeah. Uh, so for me, the, the most interesting thing is how identity emerges. And when I was getting into cognitive science, one of the, the, the question that I thought I would be working on is, is memory. And so that's what I was interested in with doing sort of the cognitive biology stuff and, uh, the cognitive psychology, uh, is, is working particularly on memory processes because I had this idea, which I, it still is very interesting to me, which is that if the memory goes everything about you that makes you you as a, as a social being also disappears. Mm -hmm. So the body can be there and people can see your body and call up the idea of the person you were, but you in the present moment is functionally dead. And so that, that to me is quite an interesting thing. And when I started studying memory, I remember early on, uh, my, my advisor, uh, Aisha John Bodorolu, who's um, was in Boazici University, now she's in Koch University in Istanbul. Um, phenomenal researcher on memory. And she had said something when we were talking about memory, because there's so many different ways you can define a memory. And when I asked her outright, just how do you define memory? She skipped all of the other things that you could say that, you know, maybe mean something, maybe don't mean something. And she said, memory is mutable. And that stuck with me. That Because out of all the things she could have said, the only word she cared to say aside from all of the obvious things about memory that you could say, all the different, slight different ways you could describe it, just sticking with memory is mutable to me was, was, was kind of a revelation because I, I'd been seeing that in the literature, but I hadn't just been thinking about memory just as a mutable capacity. And it's, a, it's one of, say, the, the typical pillars of cognitive psychology aside with you know, memory, uh, aside from perception and attention and all these other things. But... I came to start to view memory purely as a subset of beliefs because of how relative they are. They, they're two different people can recall different aspects of an event and neither can be close to, you know, even if there is a truth, even close to um, what, the, what, the, what the truth was of the event, um, meaning their, their accuracy can diverge quite greatly. And also the accuracy can diverge quite greatly over time in the same individual. I can remember one thing about an event one day and then the day after remember it slightly differently. So I think that that is why I started looking at memory purely as beliefs because I see it purely as information that is stored um, and information that is stored about other information, you know, which is essentially how I define a belief in the first place. So that was uh, why I shifted from memory research to research on beliefs and belief dynamics and looking at basically everything as information, um, sort of on a, on a very broad philosophical scale. Uh, if, if it is, then it has some quantity of information. Uh, it is quantifiable to some degree. Mm -hmm. So looking at that, uh, I, I sort of viewing identity itself as this sort of hierarchy of beliefs that we maintain with the with something that's more prioritized 
to the individual um, being some a belief that's more propagated throughout the system, more likely uh, to occur as the as the information is interacted with. So that that's basically the sort of theoretical overview of what I work on and why I think the philosophical aspect is so important. Uh, but in the in the sort of practical aspect, what that means is looking at things like um, how people interact with information, how information changes their beliefs, and how they search for information in spaces, particularly how the context of the information and their social context that they're in change how they will search for, interact with, and perceive information. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, and yeah, maybe it would be nice to hear an overview of, of where you're at. Yeah, I think... Well, um, kind of things that I'm interested on, it reflects a little bit how I approach them interdisciplinarily. So the problems are also, um, the the problem is probably on the overlap between different interests that I have. So uh, I'm interested in how um, people solve problems. So, um, and I'm also, I take the perspective that, probably the most important aspect of our environment are other individuals or other minds. Um, Obviously, (laughs) there's oxygen (laughs) and other things and in our environment, they're very important for our survival. But I think humans have evolved to to be this hyper-social being. And uh, in order to solve problems that lead us to... to, uh, um, to 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 think a little bit further on evolutionary uh, evolutionary problems so uh, how 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 the thing how, how the tools that we use to solve problems get selected um and the fact of being hyper social leads me to the questions regarding how we deal with other minds so those are the kind of uh, of problems that i i would look to i would like to look at so how we um how we manifest other minds inside of our minds, how and how we use this manifestation to solve the problems that we have, uh, uh, w- that we encounter in our environment. And um, that might seem a little bit broad because it is, and uh, it will be um, touching from, from, as I said, from evolutionary, psych- evolutionary psychology, to cultural evolution so um so there are all these tools that we use to solve problems uh, and we live in hyper social environments and we have to somehow uh uh with our cognitive capacities um, um solve efficiently those problems by representing other minds is it's it's a uh, it's probably how we have been doing it uh, uh throughout uh, our evolutionary process um in a nutshell i think that's that's about it um so yeah you can yeah i think the that's the fun part of uh where our where our two works meet is i i focus on essentially a very very similar set of things uh but i try to focus purely on what's going on on the inside of the individual um while taking account basically that the, the context is um, especially inclusive of other people, uh, is probably one of the most important things guiding what goes on uh, internally with the individual. Uh, but I try to focus on the mechanisms purely contained inside. Uh, and 
you focus just one step beyond that of kind of more of the contextual factors and what happens mm -hmm. when more people are interacting. Mm -hmm. uh, so that I think that ends up being sort of a really fun way uh, to encompass both what's happening in the individual's mind when they are interacting with, with people and then what's happening more with the people at large uh, when they are interacting. Yeah, in summary, yeah, I, I'm looking um, um, from top down, just like I, I look... Uh, how uh, what are the different structures that exist and then i will reduce it until i get to how the individual is dealing with those structures and uh, you are dealing with uh, what are the the processes that we are within the individual and what kind of product that it, does it bring up uh and what kind of structure could it bring up like what kind of like dynamics between like myself and yourself uh later on and so we are just like looking the same problem from different uh, sides of it and uh, we are looking at the same thing in the middle in the end, but uh, yeah, I see it that way as well. Yeah, and uh, should we shift over to something like probably the first uh, the first real conversation we had um, maybe 13 months ago, wow. uh, right? I mean, the mm -hmm. more more towards our, our lives outside of academia and, and some of the biggest things that drive us uh, outside is there's a huge overlap in in our interests in um, not keeping both both not keeping the the advancements of science within the realm of science kind mm -hmm. of uh, promoting you know what what science like like any other industry or or discipline or endeavor that humans undertake uh, can be applied to uh, bettering society at large mm -hmm. um, but then also how important it is to apply that to say the mechanism that uh, somehow guide society itself, which is the whole the whole realm of politics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I um, I don't like to be political politically neutral. I like to be political, and I think that's an important aspect. I think uh, when people try, uh, we already said that to each other that uh, if you try to do not take a stand, you are taking a stand. And that's obvious. Just uh, or, or you just have to look at the the context on which you are not taking a stand because you are maintaining the status quo. If you do not, um, and from that side, um, I think, I think, like by looking at the relationship between the mind and the social structure, what I hope to 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 contribute. Uh, well, that's that's we're talking about something that's um, it, it it's it's not a it's not a, a PhD thesis, right? It's not a like, it's not a my object my my uh, soon like soon to realize practical objective of of uh, of producing something, um, yeah, immediately or I'm talking about uh, kind of like idealist perspective. Yeah, that's that's what I should have said. Uh, so I, I think I could I could contribute uh, to, to 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 our understanding of how how, how to to explain the relationship between an individual's mind and the social structure where, where we live. Um, because what bothers me the most is just um, we look we look at the world we look at um, and. Um, most well that you are in your life 
uh, it's I think it's impossible that to, you, you're going to find someone on the planet and you're going to say, hey, do you think the things are going just fine? <coughs> Obviously, you're going to have like Steve, Steven Pinker and say, well, we're or others, right? Like we're better than never. And that's awesome. We should be like so happy about that. And okay, yeah, okay, we're better than than before. Uh, should therefore we be happy? I think uh, not necessarily. <laughs> uh, and one of the things that bothered me the most it's basically that we are capable of doing so much with science and um, solving so many different kinds of problems, like putting a person. In, in 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 a rock <laughs> like of very far away from us like uh and we do not think that we do have the same capacity that with with science we solve the problem of how we should uh organize ourselves so i think my contribution could be to understand what's the relationship between the individual mind and the structures where we live in to understand what how would be the better way to live together, to produce together, to to have a fulfilling life, um, to be um, as fair as, as we can be within our own moral constructs, um, and um, I think I think if if we don't try, uh, that's really like it's just strange if we don't try. It's just it's just odd. Um, so I, 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 I read a try. I, I just want to try. I want to try to find the, um, uh, I, I hope that the questions that uh, I, I pursue with my research will lead me to better answers, uh, in that direction. Yeah. Right on. Uh, I think, yeah, like you said, the, there's a lot to appreciate about the long arc of, of human progress and the the point that we're at now and and how much human beings have able been able to achieve uh but that by no means ought to make us complacent with with the status quo because there are so many people that aren't enjoying i'd say a majority of people aren't enjoying a uh significant enough share of that progress um and in fact uh for for many people that progress is built uh, upon their exploitation. So uh, that ends up being a big driving factor um, for me. And But statistically, they should be happy. <laughs> statistically, yeah. Statistically, maybe, I mean, there's no way to quantify that. Statistically, maybe they are slightly better off than they were. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's, yeah, at that at that point is, is irrelevant um, because there there's nothing that is near sufficient in terms of, the quality, average quality of life. While the average quality of life might have improved, it is far away uh, yet from anything we might consider sufficiently good enough. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I think that, that, so for me, one of the, the maybe the two things that, that cognitive science offers, um, particularly with, with my work, one is looking at and making clear the ways that attention and, and the perception of information and our individual beliefs are updated and, and basically how predictable all of that is. 
because there are so many ways that individuals are taken advantage of by existing systems, mm -hmm. which haven't necessarily been rigorously tested in scientific protocols, uh, which I think we can make clear. And maybe, I, I guess in my mind, one aspect of it is equipping people with the knowledge of how their behavior is predictable mm -hmm. and how their behavior is manipulated. And that that is definitely um, one aspect of it. And the, the other is making a case which is a bit more overtly policy-oriented, which is that the individual capacity uh, to function uh, at, a, at a high level for their own benefit, not in terms of some kind of productivity output, but function in a way where they are they are happy and able to take care of their own needs uh, is contingent upon the context that they're in. And that contextual relevance to people's uh, to people's affective states and cognitive states uh, is, is really important for me to uh, sort of build in and argue for in the research, which is um, why I think cases like um, higher programs of social welfare are critical, not just from a sort of political standpoint, but, um, you know, uh, even though it might be, it's a little less important to me, but uh, also the economic uh, standpoint, but then also the sort of ethical standpoint of why it's important to have build systems wherein uh, individuals aren't able to exploit and that the majority, if not every single individual has access to systems provided by any system of government that they live under, uh, which, which provides for their welfare. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think I, I see, I, I share, um, of your perspective. Although I think I, I, I might, I don't know. I may, maybe even a little bit more cynical and pragmatic on that. Like, um, I think it's just, it's just, it's just stupid that we don't, we, we don't strive to, to, to make a better society with science. It's just, it's just plainly stupid. It's just like you know, um, like l hearing that. Um, well, capitalism is the best thing, the best social um, 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 system that we could ever ever had, or that we that we ever had. It's not the same that saying that it, it is the best that we could ever ever had. So, um, so we should just like look for something better always. And it's just stupid that we don't. Yeah. I think, uh, the, it, as stupid as it is that we don't use science to better society, it's, I think, heartbreaking that we don't use every industry to better society. I yeah. think that just that, um, yeah, it, and it, it's sort of, it's an interesting thing that we've had successive series of of systems which have evolved, which are uh, at least in, in theory radically different from one another. Mm -hmm. And that that is also very interesting in that the, the system that we live under now, capitalism, and some people are even arguing that with the advent of the internet that capitalism as such has, has died and sort of made way for an entirely new thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm thinking of say notions of techno-feudalism from Yanis mm -hmm. uh, Varoufakis and, and the like. Uh, but you know, when we, the, the idea that everything could be, um, commodified, that individuals time and things like the quality of air and trees and 
individual creativity and expression uh, could be commodified and turned into capital uh, was an inherently appealing idea to people because then there could be equal exchanges of value in theory. Mm -hmm. uh, but what that allowed is, of course, for the devaluation of everything which humans are capable of doing, uh, which doesn't have a direct um, economic output. Mm -hmm. And so that, that, that problem of switching, converting everything to capital uh, made open up a, a huge set of, of issues in terms of how we are able to exploit individuals rather than improving the, the everyday lives of individuals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just um, talking about productivi productivity. Um, it's just like it also a concern of mine that um, um, people that would be pro status quo would just go with um, with the saying that uh, that that's uh, the system that we have in place foster uh, comp uh, competition, which fosters uh, um, increase in production, increase on on uh, productivity and um, that's why we would have actually uh, science university technology you know the thing so i think that's one of the problems that i i i would like to personally tackle because i don't think um i don't think we need a system like that and obviously you 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 you, you mentioned verifakis and uh, when when i'm saying here capitalism it's a it's a gross simplification of what the system is it's it's a uh, it's much much more complex than that, and we have like many different nuances and many different kind of dynamics going on in the entire world uh, and locally. So uh, it's a gross simplification calling it it. Um, but I think um, with my current research, for example, um, where I'm looking in on how social hierarchies are 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 built or some kind of social hierarchies are built. I I also look on how this uh, um, how these structures enable uh, uh, efficient production. So I think I think it's important. I think uh, we should strive to 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 improve and to produce uh, more efficiently, not just more, just <laughs> like um, and and um, I don't think we, I don't think we need the kind of um, like coming back to some arguments about competition we don't need the kind of system that we have right now in order to do so if we look at the scientific evidence on how we can predict what's what's the best way to to organize the social structure for the productivity so we first have to 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 look a little bit deeper on that we have to look uh and what are the psychological processes put in place to enable people to cooperate and coordinate uh, uh, before we make the um, assumption that the system that we have is the best uh, in order to do so? Because uh, I think the way that things are going, we are actually proven that um, that's, that's actually not the case, right? Like um, we're talking about uh the chains of production and uh and transportation of food around the world which are stupidly uh inefficient we're talking about uh, the degradation of natural resources uh which are another kind of stupidity that we should we we, we cannot afford 
like we can definitely do better we can we just can't do better we just can't so that's that's something that concerns me in case of uh, talking about uh, how to produce better more efficiently and it's not um so when i'm talking from 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 my political perspective i'm not, not talking about this kind of um, of a uh, uh um uh, i don't know kind of a uh, captain fantastic on the woods uh, uh living off grid or like you know the kind of like a alternative societies kind of stuff i'm talking about real things that we can do with the people around us um and that actually makes sense yeah i think that that's one of the main things that we get from technological advancement as well uh is that we can plan things more efficiently and we don't necessarily need to depend as much uh on individuals implementing uh what we think is the most efficient or what they have individually calculated as most efficient and obviously there's a whole bunch of problems with um relying too much on uh, artificial intelligence to do that planning but i think that it is at least a step in a direction uh where while there are biases in any in any system of an, of artificial intelligence it might be better at mitigating some of the some of the biases that that individuals have hmm. um and i do think that there are i think that and we we've spoken about this before but i do think that competition has its place um but i don't think that i think that our incentives for competition are misaligned and 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 flawed really from the onset instead of something uh like achievement or or prestige or mm. any other any other thing that individuals might get from competition which is basically how all of science functions mm -hmm. i mean sometimes obviously there are people some scientists that make more money than others but uh it's you don't go into science to make money mm -hmm. but it is it does have a, an element of of competition and i think that, that that is a good way to sort of mimic that in what we see is industry maybe obviously not a sort of a um capital centric industry but something where we are able to continue to be ingenious as human beings mm -hmm. and that that's sort of the funny argument uh tying financial reward to uh competition and innovation it's so flawed because all of human history is uh around the innate drive to discover mm -hmm. and i think that that that's sort of also at the heart of of true competition uh of the like that we have in the arts and the sciences as opposed to this uh more rotten uh style competition that that we have in markets where individuals are just competing in order to produce something for for capital mm -hmm. which means that a majority of what's produced is of little value at all it's just what can be sold and right now we're in an age where what is marketed to be better is more important than when actually is better mm -hmm. and that that's that if 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 nothing else shows the inherent flaw in the idea of competition with monetary reward but i think that there's another important aspect which you mentioned uh things like shipping things around the world is that we we need to solve this one really interesting problem and i i don't know how to solve it but i think it's an interesting place to start is that the the nation state which is fundamentally a, a new concept uh allows for a high degree of localization um with 
for the large part, especially in, in heterogeneous societies, a little care for ideological uh, convergence. So there, there's sort of low convergence in ideology, um, but high convergence in location because there are physical boundaries. And the way nations try to mitigate that is by creating the idea uh, of this sort of nationalist narrative. Of course, it, it gives one idea that everybody shares, mm -hmm. which is inherently meaningless, which is the, the strangest thing in how it's taken off. Um, everything from a national flag, which is also a ridiculous concept, to a national anthem, which is an insult to, to any, I think, human being. Mm -hmm. uh, a set of words through which you can relay your emotions uh, about a narrative about a nation. It, it just seems so deranged. Um, but that, so when we look at these, these two dimensions, which can sort of, if we plot them against each other, there are, there are differences of, of degree to which um, we can look at distance uh, in location, and we can look at distance in uh, ideology. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a very interesting thing to play with there where we can have slightly less localized um, systems that we try to build which have a slightly greater degree of ideological similarity. Mm -hmm. And there we might be able to at least get to a degree where we are able to accommodate um, individuals experimenting with different types of, of governance and systems so that uh, we don't try to impose something on individuals who feel like it's, uh, a system might not be right for them mm -hmm. um, with something like, I suppose, uh, a bit of the optimism there that the systems that are put in that the, of the type that we think are, are more valuable will eventually, eventually build um, better societies. So there's something, there's something there. And uh, another thing that we, we talk about a lot is sort of the gradient with idealism at one end and, and pragmatism at the other end mm -hmm. and how it's important not, not to be at either end because every every uh, step you take from idealism to pragmatism, you make some sacrifice of ideal. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to understand what that sacrifice is. And if we mm -hmm. quantify the sacrifices we make in our attempt to be pragmatic, mm -hmm. then I think it makes our pragmatism more effective and also gives it a direction. Mm -hmm. I completely agree with everything that you said. I think um, the fact that we believe the nations actually exist, it's a... Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> It's, it's, it is together with another, a, a lot of, like, with another set of beliefs which are um, on the basis of the society that we live in. So, not only nations, but also religions and uh, what do we believe that like races are, are like uh, all, all, all of those things in our imagination. Uh, and but yeah, they are deeply ingrained on uh, every single human, and um, yeah, obviously they this kind of thing also makes me think and pushes me away from from the idealist side of um, and but I I what I have been thinking mostly and uh, most recently it's um, actually maybe not most recently but like. Um, more often, it's um, when I was talking about production, and was n was actually not exactly about um, the self governance 
or like the, like the kind of governance that you would see as implemented on a kind of like uh, nation state or but on the level of production so like coming back to the basics uh um and looking at the places like Mondragon uh, uh, in uh, Spain when you have like this huge complex of with many different kind of of, of um of factories and uh, basically a whole industry on a city where the the decision power on the production side it's uh, it's it's um it's it's not entirely ori horizontal so you have you have uh, hierarchical structures going on in those places uh which are kind of constrained by 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 a set of rules that everybody just uh, willingly accept them because they're working and they produce they 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 still make good uh, good um, surplus on their production and um, the people who participates on this on this um, on this on this social system on this structure they they fare well they do well uh, so I think I think I would I would uh, when I'm talking about those things I'm thinking more about like about um, starting with the self-organization and the production side and that's why I also uh, uh, said about productivity because um, um, some of some of the things uh, w when I say about pragmatism it's also on the aspect of people need to find the solutions for the things that they need to solve on on their on the daily day-to-day -day life so if you're trying to implement a different kind of of social system in a nation state uh, you're just like messing things around <laughs> because uh, people don't need this solution for that problem like that's not the problem like the, the problem of of the nation for most of the people i believe it's, it's not the kind of the daily the daily problem that they have to face oh i have to deal with like Obviously, you're going to be dealing with uh, problems that are related to the uh, to the governance or like I don't know, but it, it's it's not the thing that you go with your daily basis that uh, you have to to worry that like okay, this system like obviously it's on this on is on the discourse because people rationalize yeah things are bad because things are like this or like that, but actually you need to get faster to work or you need a comfortable way to get to work or you need a better um um you, you need localized things you need to deal with the problems in your daily life and i think dealing with the production with the people that you are actually sharing the environment and sharing the means of production with them it's it's a better way to to put it instead of like yeah no we, we have to change the the system from the top no we, we we change it from from the bottom by tackling the problems that you need to solve yeah i think that the um the idea of the nation state emerged from um, sort of the feudal systems that we had of, of monarchs, empires. And all that happened was that a slightly larger uh, group of people just in number were allowed to be part of the ruling class. And that's basically all that we got in the transition from the, um, from the traditional sort of empire to the current form of nation state is that all it did was maintain power uh, to a tightly held group of people, uh, which then corporations were able to, to capitalize on. And that that's all that a strong central government allows us. But really, we don't need anything like that because humans are capable of, of uh, solving incredibly complex problems at a very local level. And we've devalued local politics, which is um, 
at, at the heart of it, what is going to affect everybody's day-to-day lives. Mm-hmm. And we've, we've relegated that power and that enormous responsibility to a small set of individuals who are effectively disconnected from the mm-hmm. large uh, amount of people which they preside over. And for that reason, we've allowed narratives which have nothing to do with most people's everyday lives take control over, over how they, they view political systems. And this is really important when we look at even dismantling systems of, of systemic injustice because the, the systems of injustice that are the most uh, effective at disenfranchising folks are uh, top-down systems, whereas systems which are highly localized uh, innately, uh, groups which are disenfranchised from national governments have been able to thrive at local levels mm-hmm. when as long as the government doesn't step in and 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 fuck everything up yeah i, I have to to be a little bit fair here because uh, what i what i meant that uh, the the nation state doesn't is not the problem of the <laughs> daily life it, it's it's not exactly the case i mean um maybe it's the ideal case that you don't have to worry about a war that you didn't start or you don't have to worry about uh, a, a law that you, you didn't vote for or you didn't, you know, th- that's what I meant. But obviously people suffer with with the decisions uh, t- to came from, from the top. That's so just to make it clear that uh, that's yeah. what I meant and not the... Not the yeah, that, that, that's how I interpreted it, but it's good to clarify for everybody listening. <laughs> <as well>. uh, <laughs> and uh, I guess one other thing that I, I um, just wanted to point out, which I, I know you agree with, but also for, for anybody listening, is um, when we devalue things like the, like the nation state and ideas of race, nationality, things like that, um, it's, it's also a completely different thing to talk about something like culture, mm-hmm. which is sort of a, a practice of collective art uh, it is it is the this phenomenal thing that human beings are able to do, um, which is um, build a, a system of, of narratives and styles of speaking, thinking, eating, dressing, um, producing anything abstract like like uh, sort of art in the individual sense, uh, and carrying that across generations. And I think that that's a phenomenally beautiful thing, mm-hmm. and really shapes a lot of um, how we how we think and behave things that we are a product of, um, which is also why, uh, I guess at the beginning of the episode, you, you mentioned that you're Brazilian. I mentioned that I'm, mm-hmm. I'm ethnically Armenian um, because of, of how it just shapes us and not the things that we, we value over other things necessarily, but just the, the, the elements of, of sort of the human anthropological ancestry that we are individually custodians of. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, as as a sort of custodian of Brazilian culture, myself as a as a as a custodian of of Armenian culture, particularly diasporic uh, Armenian culture, is is a is a beautiful thing to to be celebrated and and not lumped in with and conflated for the idea of the nation state, which is uh, completely bereft of meaning and value as as opposed to what culture offers us. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, uh, yeah. I think I think it's actually they 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 can be very conflicting most of the times, actually. Like yeah. Yes, yes. They can even conflict with each. Aside from being conflated for each other, they can also uh, directly conflict uh, yeah. with one another. Definitely. Like you can have um, you you can have the idea of what. Like yeah, obviously, I say I'm Brazilian and I, I'm. 
there there is meaning on what I'm saying. There is a intention on what I'm the reason I'm I'm even mentioning it. But um but I also mentioned my neighborhood, for example. Which is which is it's much more telling of myself than being Brazilian itself. Like basically, I sell basically what I t what I said is that I came from this neighborhood. This neighborhood happens to be in São Paulo. That happens to be in Brazil. So I wouldn't like if I just said yes, I'm Brazilian. Like yeah, what what's the general information contained on this statement? It's just like yeah, well the stereotype of being a Brazilian, but no, no, I came from a, no, a really poor neighborhood and the south side of Sao Paulo. And that tells me much more about how I am culturally built. Yeah, I, I totally get that. Uh, give us the name of the neighborhood. Grajau. There you go. Um, and also, yeah, that's, that's why I also um, really strongly sort of identify with, with uh, the portion of my upbringing that was in Queens um, is because I, I feel like those are the the emotions that are more the memories that are most salient uh, because of what what I experienced there and uh, really my worldview uh, of of a lot of things of really experiencing this very multicultural place, which is very different from not only other places in in New York but also almost a, a different um, completely different cultural style. Um, from from many of the other places, most of the other places in the United States, and so it's a, it's very interesting and also very telling uh, that even the elements of the of the culture that we maintain are are localized. Mm -hmm. That there are strong local elements to the culture and the the things that we value, um, which which you know, uh, not to speak against anything like a large scale um, human endeavors, but uh, really uh, speaks to the value of of local interactions between human beings. Yeah, and I think we 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 probably all of us kind of um, we for more like we we have been here uh, talking about the nation state as if it was it it is the social construct that it is, but we have been talking about it as if we are a part of it, but uh, we are definitely completely uh ingrained kind of like entangled with it because uh because uh, we, we end up being that's that's all because uh we are made believe right we are uh that happens to to be um there is a fact also that we we are in a in a world where well we, like me and you for example we have been traveling so th that changes uh the the perspective of, of like the, the this imaginary uh, the, the cultural imaginary on people's heads you know like uh, if if you if you have been uh living in the same place which is like maybe a small place in the countryside of a, or any country and you, you live your entire life there you're going to get this uh culturally localized imagination and what but like what people do like the way that people do what they do um, how should I think about the word? What like, what are the perspectives I should have, uh, and so on? And then when you start to traveling a little bit, and then you go out, maybe you 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 end up being confronted with the nation state again. So yeah, I I I go to Ireland, and then I am more Brazilian than when I was in Brazil. I I just end up being because, uh, and. Um, 
but yeah just to to mention that uh, i at, at least i can t- i can say it for myself that um, i might say something sometimes as disconnected or putting me apart of it but uh, i i make no um I make no I, 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 I won't make any effort to to say that I am as 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 an average person as everybody else so I'm I'm not a I'm not a, a superhuman being that uh, like I, I can understand those things I am not a I, I cannot be entirely a part of those things yeah you mean uh, a part of those things or entirely apart from those things apart entirely apart from those things yeah yeah I, I it definitely, um, yeah, it makes sense that, or it's fitting that um, we're both uh, expats. We're both expatriates. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that, there's there's a, a a large element of the things that um, that we both criticize that um, we can both empathize with, with feeling and siding with. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's not like um, during the course of my uh, education that I never felt uh, things like patriotism. Mm-hmm. Uh, or things like that yep. as a as a as a youth uh but i think it's it's just a testament for um you know uh read read more books uh travel to more places and it doesn't matter <laughs> it's like check out some fiction and check out your local uh your neighboring neighborhood even mm-hmm. uh even it doesn't need to be a, a plane flight or something fancy but uh it it's it's necessary to incorporate as many different aspects of the human experience as possible in order to uh, gain gain the perspective uh, of of empathy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like I, I also like I, I probably had I had problems during my teenagehood to not be patriot. You know, I think I mentioned some stories to you of uh, having to to sing the the anthem or something like that. And I, I was if just well, I, c- I can tell more about my teenagehood, but that would take a lot of time. But. Uh, uh, yeah, I, just, I think the thing that I was like, it's it's like, obviously the thing that I want to say is it's different degrees. Yeah. So yeah, I can be a nationalist in terms of uh, of of uh, defending Brazilian food, which I think is awesome. Hey, culture! Yeah. I, I love that other culture. So <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> if you compare it to other foods, I will defend it. I will say no, no, it's it's good food. So I don't have to defend a flag or or anton, but. Uh, I think the food is it's yeah. The food and the music is not part of the nation. The nation doesn't get to claim yes, that. that yes. That's purely cultural no, definitely, uh, artifact. Yeah. Definitely, but but it be, but but it's it's definitely um, like anything that is cultural can be hijacked. Yeah, purely like, hijacked. I yeah, mean, the nation yeah. state has has nothing to do with it. Yeah, you know, yeah. But 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 that's that's what the but that's what the the building of the the the. the, the the construct of the nation state uh, does exactly. It, it takes everything that is, like, can be remotely uh, seen as a value, um, m- maybe localized, maybe um, more or less localized, and and just like uh, say that's that's what defines you, and that's why you're better than the other nation. Yeah, uh, and it it also uh, creates divides between individuals that have shared cultures for generations yeah, definitely. purely by drawing a line exactly I mean, there are so many people that are that share adjacent cultures but say oh no this this food is from this country this food is from this country but really of course it was one region before a line was drawn in between them exactly uh, and it also sort of perpetuates this this great myth that uh whenever 
a territory or, or an empire has taken over a plot of land that all of a sudden those individuals in the new plot of land are part of that territory. Mm-hmm. It's not like during Rome's expansion that more Romans were created. Mm-hmm. It was just individuals who had to pay taxes to a small group of people in Rome. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing of, of many countries' expansions and territories they are um, from, I guess, both both um, the country that you're from and the country that I'm from have histories of, of genocide against indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. And there's by no way a Brazilianification or an Americanification, uh, Americanification of the individuals who are on those lands who have uh, an entirely different culture um, just because the, the nation and the flag that, they're, that uh, owns basically the land that they're on uh, can it, it doesn't get to dictate what what and who they are? Yeah, definitely, completely agree with you. Yeah, I I start just think about a list of things that people could just have a self identity and being hijacked as 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 a as a kind of like nation identity. Um, I think uh, yeah, we're seeing the case for religion very often of um, uh, drawing divides um when they should not yeah like just no reason i i guess we can uh we can have a whole other episode on on tribalism which might actually yes, be really yes. really fun uh yeah. to do especially with a lot of the research that both of us mm-hmm. i think i think um uh to like during this this episode where like we we kind of we have been painting the picture of what we expect this uh, uh, this interaction to be, or this like the podcast in itself to be. We started with with um, with evolution and comparing us to other animals. We passed through many different aspects of cognitive science, many different perspectives uh, from different uh, disciplines. We talked about uh, uh, artificial intelligence, and then we end up in politics by talking about the construction of the nation state and there was a lot of things between and a lot of things between probably like maybe half of it was very personal uh from me and you probably we we, we probably we said like we, we told a couple of stories about ourselves and uh, we also put very clear what our perspectives on 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 topics here so i think we have been doing a good job in this first one by Painting a picture on how I think it's gonna look like the next episode, right? We just covering a really broad range of of topics, putting our our ideas on it, a little bit of our knowledge of what we know about those things, uh, relating a little bit of uh, 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 it with uh, with the work that we've been doing, um, and uh, being multidisciplinary, looking at things from different perspectives. And being ourselves, telling our stories, and uh, I think um, that sounds really sounds like a sounds like a map. Yeah, exactly. I think we can we can probably wrap it up right there. I mean, we'll, uh, things to expect are maybe slightly more uh, narrow topics of conversation going mm-hmm. forward, and a bit more of of uh, the the literature that maybe we work with, mm-hmm. and then the perspectives that that engenders uh, in in each of us. Yeah, probably every single minute of this conversation 
could generate an entire episode in itself. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll have to use a language model to to parse out all the topics and then we'll have a good list. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> we can try it out too. I, I we we can try with, with GPT four. Yeah, yeah. Which right. if it's, well, uh, but uh, yeah, yeah. I think. Uh, um, yeah, w- what I wanted to say is just that. Um, Everything that we, at least from my perspective, that I have been saying here, I got the feeling now in the end that um, it was very superficial. Yeah. And I didn't want it to have this feeling. I, I, uh, when I'm, or I, it's no, it's like, I don't want, I, I don't like to be left hang with the feeling that I could have said more about something. If I would have the time for it, but yeah, yeah, there's, there's, there's more to come. But yeah, it's a good so, precursor. So, uh, but that's that's the idea, right? That's the we're gonna we everything that we said we're gonna we're gonna give more attention and talk more about them. Yeah, and, and other things. And we will definitely work to have uh, more detailed show notes with with links uh, to the evidence as to why we hold particular opinions, mm-hmm. um, both uh, in sort of academic literature and also in sort of popular texts and um, potentially uh, some historical context so that uh, you don't think that uh, we are taking any of the things that we say for granted mm-hmm. and uh, the, that we provide adequate justification for, for any of the claims that we might make. Yeah, yeah, definitely. What about uh, having... Oh, yeah, and, and potentially also having some, some guests. Um, yeah, and potentially a, a bit more direct reference to, to some texts uh, which reminds me, maybe something I'll uh, mention a bit more often are, are things like A History of Equality by Thomas Piketty, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, I was thinking of when, when we were talking about um, uh, about the uh, ever-optimist um, who you referenced before. Ah, uh, Stephen Pinker. Yeah, thank you, Pinker, uh, who's, uh, I think, a good, a good um, pragmatic realist uh, alternative uh to to the works of of people like pinker uh thomas piketty's history of equality is is really uh, a fantastic text so we'll we'll dive into more fun things like that and and hopefully also provide a a good list of um of resources Mm -hmm. uh to dive into aside from the individuals that that we might have on that in themselves are are great resources definitely more more than just to being here talking out of our heads stuff I think uh, uh, the primary objective would be like to actually enable people to make their own conclusions yes about those topics so for to to do that we we we're gonna definitely make it material available for you to not take anything for granted that uh, either of us are saying or anyone else actually yeah um yeah keep listening and you will be equipped with everything that we find valuable and ha- we feel has equipped us to to think about uh, society and and the human condition uh, through the lens of cognitive science. Cool.